Welcome to another episode of Cultivate. This is a show about you and your journey in the cannabis industry. It's moving fast, but there's room for everyone. Buckle up as we bring you the people and the technology that are blazing the trail. We're, we're having a podcast. We're doing Cultivate. This is Boveda's uh, attempt to uh, engage the people and the technology that are blazing a trail in the cannabis industry because we're the little company from Minnesota that has this desire to be involved in everybody's cannabis outcomes uh, because we really feel strongly about what we're, we're capable of doing. And we're yep. excited to get to know what you're doing. So we're with Andrew D'Angelo, one of the famous, infamous D'Angelo brothers that are involved with Harborside. And now that might be underestimating what you're doing. I say Harborside because that's the way I relate to it. Is it, it's, is it, has it gotten bigger than Harborside? Is it well, yes. Because you just had something ma- big happen just a week That's or two right. Ago. That's right. We launched our n- latest nonprofit, Steve and I, and a team of, of really talented, amazing people have launched the last prisoner project, soft launch last week at Jim Belushi's house. We're trying to raise money for our big launch that we're doing in the fall. And the mission of that nonprofit is very simple get everybody out of prison for cannabis on earth right so right now here we are at this conference companies like you have been around for a long time even before the cannabis scene started to hit uh, globally and nationally here in the united states it all started in california right with prop 215 medical cannabis and so now we're seeing you know cut from 1996 when that first law was passed till Today, 2019, and you have billion-dollar companies being traded publicly. You have um, multi-state operators. You have all kinds of auxiliary companies like yourselves. And folks are making an awful lot of money for doing the same exact thing that these folks are locked up for. Right. Growing, transporting, um, manufacturing, and distributing cannabis. Do you have so, a sense how many people that impacts? I mean, is there a? Um, I mean, that's. Yeah. The, I, I understand the goal of getting people out of prison for non-violent or non. Like, if I committed a murder and I was, I had a bunch of weed. That's a little complicated compared to yes. just being busted for possession or yes. Uh, so, what are the limits of what you're trying to do, and how do people connect with that charity? What's the Right. Well, it it is very complicated, as you as you say. The first thing I'll tell everybody: lastprisonerproject.org is the website. You can learn more about what we're doing there and what our strategy is. Right? Because it's not just getting people out of prison. We also have to get them jobs and right. have them reorient themselves to society. When you get out of prison, you're given a bus ticket, and thank you very much. You're out of prison now. Set them up for success. Not very, yes, not set up for success, right? And not even set up to spend the night in a home sometimes Mm. or or, or, and you're out on the street. So part of our mission is to partner with people in our industry uh, to set up a, instead of having a schools to prison pipeline like we have now, and particularly in American cities, um, we are going to build a prison to jobs pipeline right. so that we can employ people in our industry who've been locked up for the same thing that we're all doing uh, every single day in our company. So that's the mission of LPP. Um, uh, to get a sense of how many people are locked up, we estimate about 40,000 in the United States, and that's just purely nonviolent. Um, 
once you start including people who perhaps had a gun in their possession, maybe they didn't use the gun, but they had it in their possession, a gun was found, then those numbers go up. Yep. And I'll just tell you one quick story. Uh, Michael Pelletier is a, is, a, is a man who, when he was 11 years old, he was in a farming accident, Midwestern, yep. not far from Minnesota, in Michigan, actually. Yep. Yep. And um, he got busted bringing loads in across the lake from Canada. He didn't have any guns with him. He's a paraplegic. He was injured when he was a kid. This was the way he made a living. This is the, and it was his medicine too, right? Yeah, I mean, right. you're a paraplegic. Mm. Um, and he got busted. They didn't find any firearms on him, but of course, as soon as you're busted out in the field, they put you in the squad car and they take you to your home. They get a search warrant and they searched his house. They found a couple antique guns uh, at his home. And so now this man is in prison Aggra for life. Ag aggravating factor. That's, that's for a life. technicality. Yeah, for life. Oh, okay, man. and he is a paraplegic. He's in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. He's doing the same thing right. we've all done for years and years and years. And, and that's the perfect example of why Steve and I have launched this nonprofit and why we're so passionate about this. We, we've got to get people out. We cannot right. sit here at a conference like this and make multi-million dollar deals and think about these folks that are locked up that, that are really truly our brothers and sisters and many of them were the pioneers. Right. Were the pioneers who just happened to get busted along the way and didn't have the resources to get a really good lawyer or didn't have the resources to fight the case or cop the plea deal that, of course, they regret now or, or whatever the particular circumstances must be, we got to get them out. So that's the mission of LPP. So I love, I ask you the question about uh, the, the big deal that happened in the last couple of weeks and you immediately default to the last prisoner project <laughs> as opposed to that little thing that went down with the, the uh, markets and uh, the uh, uh, IPO. Right. So I, I think it says a lot when uh, the answer to the question is, uh, yeah, we launched a charity and the last prisoner project.org. And um, instead of talking about your IPO, you want to give us a little update on what went sure. down and, and how excited you are about that? Sure, and I don't mean to discount the IPO. It's a huge. It's cool though that you went to the charity first. Well, this just we it, it shows where your heart's at. We're just uh, uh, <laughs> you can take the D'Angelo out of the man, but not the man out of the D'Angelo, I guess. But um, <laughs> that's what's important to Steve and I, right? No, that's cool. It, the mission is 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 more important to us than the money. It, it's always been that way, but. We do have to pay our bills, and we right. have a payroll of two or three hundred people. We have to support, and and now that we're a publicly traded company on the Canadian stock exchange, our mandate is to grow like every uh, public company. So it's a really wonderful story that here's this little engine that could harborside that started 13 years ago, that was attacked by the federal government, not just with the forfeiture action, but the 280E case, which we're still fighting in Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco, where on appeal there. Um, we've taken all these arrows for the industry, right, with those cases. Um, and we had to learn how to operate a retail store at the highest levels, right? Our vision for Harborside was to create a model that was a gold standard for everybody that all walks of life feel comfortable in, that didn't have bars on the window, that didn't have guys with big guns standing outside the door and 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 that w allowed people to learn about cannabis this new thing and to feel safe in the community that this dispensary was there uh, so this little 
dispensary that could has now gone all the way to the Canadian Stock Exchange. We've defeated the federal government. We beat the forfeiture action. Uh, we transitioned from a nonprofit medical model to a for-profit adult use model in California. We all know how difficult that's yeah. been for everybody the last year and a half. And now finally Harborside can access the public markets and anybody on earth can now invest in the Harborside story and buy a few shares. And so it's a really wonderful moment for so us. So I can actually buy into your business in some small way. Yes, anybody can. You do have to figure out how to do that on the Canadian Stock yes, Exchange. Okay. So but, you have to get yourself a exciting, broker. Because right? now anybody can can uh, participate in the direction of the company. Yes. That's fantastic. So yes. jumping back to day one, you were an aspiring actor. That's right. Then what happened? What was that transition from wanting to go down that path to mm. starting Harborside and getting into the cannabis space? Well, it actually happened way before Harborside opened. So I went to grad school to study to be a, a classical stage actor and film actor in the early 90s. And what got me into this was all my colleagues were dying of AIDS. And Dennis Perone was sitting there in San Francisco doing the great work of bringing the medicine to the people you had ACT UP that was trying to bring awareness to the country that AIDS was a real thing and yeah. that we needed to talk about this openly and we needed to identify this as a crisis that the country needed to respond to. It took a decade just to get, you know, the President of the United States to say AIDS, to mm -hmm. say the word AIDS yep. or HIV. Um, so I was in the middle of that fight as a young man and, and these, these, these people that I was creating theater with were dying, were getting sick and dying and, and, and luckily I was already a cannabis person at that yeah. time. I was already selling cannabis to all the actors but, but and this is really the original crucible of where cannabis became relevant in this whole medical use approach that's right. was to address the AIDS crisis. That's right. That's, that's exactly where it began. Right. That's right where it began, Drew. You're absolutely right. and and. Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary and John Entwistle and a whole bunch of other unsung heroes made it happen. And they took tremendous risks. Some of them went to prison. Um, Dennis got shot by a police officer, you know, some years before that. And so Dennis was a target of the police for, for his whole life, really. Um, and, and that's where it all began. And so I was a young actor at that time. The Iraq war started at that time. The AIDS crisis was raging at that time. This conservative revolution that Ronald Reagan and, and the first Bush sort of ushered in was, was ending, was sort of dying a little bit. And it was time for me to activate myself. So I, I, I became radicalized, if you will. And I was performing these Shakespeare plays at night, you know, in front of people that were pretty privileged uh, and they were watching me perform Shakespeare and I'm up there you know emoting my heart out and making sure I could tell the story just right and I realized I wasn't having the impact that I was having when I woke up early in the morning I'd go demonstrate against the war I'd go sell weed with Dennis or I'd go collect signatures with John to get medical cannabis on the ballot we got it on the ballot in the city of San Francisco first and then we got it on the ballot statewide, but we had to get it on the ballot in San Francisco first, and that happened in 92. So I was brought into the scene in that way, and of course my brother Steve was already a huge icon and activist 
in cannabis and he was launching his industrial hemp company Ecolution right as I was finishing my studies so it, it became a natural fit for me to once I graduated from the conservatory to join Steve uh, back east in my hometown of Washington DC and we had the industrial hemp company for Ecolution Incorporated first company to make 100% hemp denim since Levi Strauss did it in the wow. 1800s and very proud of that. That company was about 30 years ahead of its time. I wish I had that company right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, Levi Strauss is an iconic brand that's based in San Francisco. And they are now starting to blend hemp into their jeans for the really? first time. Yes, they just made that announcement, I think, a month or two ago. Wow. They're going to start with blends, so it won't be 100% hemp. But I'm, I'm excited that the day will come shortly where there'll be lots of 100% hemp denim. Yeah. So, My shoes I'm wearing right now are actually hemp. No way. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So I want to plant a seed for a possible comment later. If you have an immediate reaction to this, great. But otherwise, just shelve it for later. We'll okay. come back to it. We'll go talk about justice some more. But um, are you haunted by Shakespeare <laughs> since you did so much of it? Do you have something that's just like is part of your um, your mantra, your your? Uh, oh, that I could say. That yeah, I mean, my mine would be: shall I act upon the urging that I feel, or remain passive and thus cease to exist? Which sounds like the the auger of where you were back in your well in, when you got started as an activist. Well, you know, to be or not to be, that is the question. Is sort of what we're all asking ourselves in in this industry right now, right? So see how that kind of. You did well. Wasn't that cool? That was cool, God, I'm going gonna, gonna to watch this over and over that again. That was so cool. I mean, when not I many people who interview me can quote Shakespeare off the cuff, so, so wanna, good for you. I want to go back to justice, and I want to ask you a question that I've asked a number of people in the industry. You, uh, originally, this whole initiative was started in order to support patients. Yes. The medical patient was at the center of everything, and, and I talked to a trimmer, a fellow by the name of Tim, who got into the business because his wife was dying of cancer and he wanted her to have access to the flower. And yes. uh, we had just a heart-rending uh, conversation about what he went through to support his wife, how cannabis changed her outcomes for the, for the, the long and really rewarding uh, descent for her before she, she passed. Mm. They had real high-quality life together because of what cannabis did for her. So he said to me, I'll offer you this. He said, I think that, that, that California has sold its soul in the cannabis industry. And a lot of people talk about big business and they talk about companies and this whole attitude about corporations and, you know, selling your soul to the, to the, to the, uh, the cause has been sort of sublimated. The patient's no longer at the center of the cannabis conversation. I want to know how you feel about that and if you agree in any sense of that. Is there... Has there been a, I'll give you an example of what happened in Canada. When they went adult use, they had an unintended consequence where the same thing happened in uh, Las Vegas. The patient couldn't get any medicine because they didn't prepare and hold back stock to have people have access. Um, so that's sort of my contextualization of selling your soul. So, and I also have, have the other end of this. I'll tell you the punchline before I ask you to comment on it. Um, I think that the every stakeholder can participate in the industry buying its soul back um, if we found a way for anybody that's terminal to have free access to cannabis. Um, any stakeholder, whether it's Lori Ajax and her department uh, at the state of California, uh, they can participate, the producers can participate, the stores, the 
the local uh, governments that are benefiting so much, the ones that haven't rejected uh, uh, brick and mortar in their in their neighborhoods. So that's, that's that's just sort of a broad frame to throw that into. But do you think that the industry has sort of naturally sold its soul because of the how it's grown up and shifted to more of a commercial endeavor? And do you think there is a a, a, a clarion call in the industry to buy back that soul and maybe? Uh, do some altruistic things uh, beyond what you suggested earlier with the the uh, last prisoner project. Well, I think your question is a really important one and a good one, and I'm thrilled that you asked me it, even though it's a painful question to for all of us to consider. The story you just told about the trimmer who got into this to help his wife with cancer, and that it worked. He got into it. He was able to access the medicine, he was able to provide the medicine, and the medicine did its job. I've, Steve and I have heard that story tens of thousands of times in the last 13, 14 years since we've had Harborside. We want that, that story to continue in the world. We want that story to happen over and over again. And we don't want that story to not happen because we haven't created an effective design for legalization and regulation. We got the design wrong in California really badly. I serve on the board of directors for the California Cannabis Industry Association. I'm one of the founding board members. I've been a part of that organization from the beginning for the last eight or nine years. And we've worked very hard to try to fix some of the structural problems that exist within the law and the regulations that are preventing patients from getting the access to the kind of cannabis they need at the quantities they need at the potency they need. In terms of free cannabis to people in need, we did run a bill this summer that's working its way through the California legislature. I'm confident it will pass. One of the few that's going to pass this <laughs> session that will help patients and that will help us all create access to sick people and poor people. So I'm confident that will happen. Once that passes, then we're going to be able to give free medicine back to the terminally ill or people just living in poverty. And then it'll be up to operators like Harborside and others to create programs for the community that they exist in um, so that we can continue that care package program. Harborside has had a care package program from day one until the laws and regulations changed it. And then we sort of pivoted, we tried to pivot around that with this one penny or one dollar, you know, skew prices that we try to do as often as we can to bring folks in. And we still heal people with alternative holistic services at our shop in Oakland. They're not free anymore. We have to charge a sliding scale for them. I can't afford to pay for them anymore as I did when we were nonprofit. But if there's a will, there's a way. And we have to fix the structural problems with taxes in California. We have to fix the structural problems with local control. As you mentioned, 60% of the land mass in the California is banned. There's bans in Okay, place. so get, put that in context. So, so every, you, t every time you, you uh, have a change in regulation, uh, it, it affects this at the state level, at the county level, at the municipal level, and what they've decided to do 
is reject brick and mortar in their neighborhoods, right? Is that is that well, the, the line? way Prop sixty four worked, and we could probably do a whole podcast on what went wrong with Prop sixty four. But that, that's the, a great idea. Maybe we should schedule that. I think you should invite Sean Parker and, and see if he'll come on. Love to do it with you as well. Yeah, I'd love to be on with him. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Parker was the funder. Um, of Prop 64, and he his voice was very loud and important because the funders are the ones that ultimately make the decisions when you do an initiative process. And some of the decisions he made empowered the local people, and some of the decisions empowered the tax authorities to tax. And those decisions are coming back to haunt us in a pretty big way right now, especially when you're talking about patients, people who live in poverty, equity licensees and equity people who are trying to get into the industry, barriers of entry are simply too high. So there's a lot to fix. Um, it's but, the same with Minnesota. I don't know if you know much about the medical market in Minnesota, but we had Charlie Rutherford. Uh, this is how Bovary became really passionate about the cannabis industry. His leg was amputated in a motorcycle accident. Oh my God. So he had phantom pain, yeah. got hooked on opiates. Wasn't finding relief. Obviously, we all know the the downfalls of opiates and, and all the side effects that happen from that. Yeah. And so he went to cannabis and he ended up getting his medical license or card in Minnesota. But how it, he couldn't afford the prescription. They don't allow for flour. It was very limited. They only allowed two producers, two, producers, yeah. two or three dispensaries where you could get it. And he couldn't afford to you. To, and he's a successful guy in business and and he couldn't even afford it so he's going to colorado and other states yep. to to source his medicine yeah it's very sad listen we have to create wide access at an affordable price we can't let every nimby in the world block a cannabis dispensary in their neighborhood we have to have some kind of check and balance on that there was a bill run in Sacramento that failed this year that, that would have provided such a check and balance. And it basically said that if Prop 64 passed in your community, you have to license retail. And you have to license a certain amount per 25,000 citizens or 15,000. They couldn't decide on what the number was, right? Sounds but the bill right. fails. So is there any the other substance, fails. is there any other marketable good uh, that gets treated the way cannabis gets treated? In terms, I mean, is there, uh, are there any uh, jurisdictions in the state of California that uh, outlaw alcohol? Are there Not any? that I'm aware of. I don't think there are any dry, dry counties in it, California. There are certainly in Utah. Was that, to the, was that their purview to make that decision? Could they do that if they wanted to? the local control piece or is this strictly something that they've done for say cannabis and I no. presume gentlemen's clubs have the same issues with some some uh, municipalities. That's right I mean local control is very sacred here in California so the reason we have a homeless crisis is because locals aren't building enough affordable housing. The reason we have an affordable housing crisis locals aren't building enough affordable housing. Nobody wants a homeless shelter in their neighborhood. Nobody wants a cannabis dispensary in their neighborhood. Nobody wants working class housing in their neighborhood. Well, they, people have to live somewhere. And so we're having this problem in California. It's not just the cannabis issue. 
Um, there's lots of other issues, and local control is very sacred here. It's very built into the political establishment. We have one-party rule in California. The Democrats basically rule everything here. Uh, and so local control is baked into almost everything in California. So it's not just cannabis. Well, but I will say that the locals have banned cannabis dispensaries a lot more than they have a gentleman's club, for instance, certainly alcohol, certainly tobacco, certainly firearms, things like that, that one could argue are much more harmful to communities than cannabis ever will be. Um, so, so here in California, local control is pretty strong. What's well, intriguing because the presumption is that if you have a cannabis dispensary, you're going to have all sorts of vice that goes along with it. And the reality, in my experience, having visited cannabis dispensaries all over the country where they allow me in, um, it, it's um, and some states don't allow me in because I'm uh, like last week I was in Arizona. I don't have a Arizona yep. medical card. I couldn't get in yep. because you have to be a resident. That's so you right. can't. It's a great way to limit the number of salesmen coming through your front door. But uh, intriguing thing is so many of these towns and cities where they have uh, cannabis dispensaries, they are a source for good. They're a source for community. They're a source for jobs. They're a source for people coming together. You don't see. It's not like uh, some, you know, tacky, uh, dingy uh, smoke shop that's just kind of the Wild West. It's like. They're sophisticated. There's a lot of really cool things going on inside. Right. I couldn't agree with you more. We have this perception problem. I know of a group uh, in Napa right now that's trying to open a medical-only dispensary. That's all they allow in Napa is medical. And there's a neighborhood group that is just going crazy up there. And that same mythology is what the neighborhood group is telling their members. Oh, there's going to be more crime near the dispensary. There's going to be a lot more homeless people. There's going to be all these undesirable elements. And it's just not true. If you examine the data, if you examine the crime statistical data, you see that crime goes down in the dispensaries because we have security cameras everywhere and we have security guards everywhere and we have eyes on the neighborhood everywhere. So we're a much harder target for anyone who's trying to rob somebody or follow some uh, any of that we're a much harder target right um the biggest danger is it's all cash businesses right right so really nasty people can can take advantage of that um so we it's a misperception that we have to we have to tell our story better and we have to reduce the stigma of cannabis in society podcasts storytelling, television shows, films, these are the things that we need to have these positive experiences being told over and over and Well, over. and you're a great spokesperson for that type of thing. That's why this is so exciting for us to get you on our podcast, because um, when the idea came up, uh, uh, you had a ready outline of things that you were more than happy to talk about. They were all very interesting. Yep. And, and one of them was uh, the concept of culture and decision-making structures. Um, if and if we have time, would we still have a little time? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's let's talk about. Um, you mentioned stigma. Let's talk about stigma culture, decision making structures, and then let's uh, segue into tourism. Let's. And I, I have one quick question. If yeah. someone's listening right now and they want to get into the cannabis space, make a difference, make a change in their own community, what would you advise them to do? Boy, that's a very big question, isn't it? It really does depend where you live. 
If I lived in San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco, I would plug into, I would learn about the different companies that are, first figure out your skill set. What's your skill set and what do you want to, how do you want to contribute, right? That's very important. When I'm hiring people at Harborside, when I know somebody is in touch with their own skill set and what their strengths and weaknesses are, the interview is going to go a lot better. Pick companies that you believe in, whose missions you believe in, whose leadership you feel aligns with your own integrity and your own values because there's a lot of different companies now with a lot of different values and a lot of different missions and some companies they just want to make money for their shareholders other companies are run by people like me and steve who have a much bigger mission involved that includes getting people out of prison and lifting people out of poverty and so you can plug in uh, with folks like that that are aligned with your values we're always looking for people who our mission speaks to and who get excited about what we're doing you know that's the most important thing what we try to do in our organization is we try to develop a sense of trust and shared consciousness so instead of carrots and sticks you know carrots and sticks are very popular you got a number you hit your number boy I'm gonna give you a carrot you don't hit your number I'm gonna whack you with a stick it sounds familiar I, I, I'm, I'm, I was immediately shuddering in fear when you went to carrots and sticks, right? <laughs> yeah, we all elicits, have that reaction. Fear, yes. And 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 like the annual performance review is another thing that yeah. causes anxiety, right? And so I think we need a different approach to how we make decisions and how we work together. And I think most of us are getting it wrong in our industry. And I like to leverage trust and shared consciousness instead of command and control and carrot and sticks and i want we have a very it's because i learned the hard way harborside started to grow right from the beginning our business model was very popular and all of a sudden before you knew it we had hundreds of people a day coming through the business and i had to manage all that i had to run it on the day today and we had a lot of constraints whether it be political constraints or regulatory constraints or we just didn't know or banking constraints, or federal government constraints, and you have all these constraints. And it causes complexity in your ecosystem that command and control just doesn't keep up with. The complexity is moving so fast with so many interdependencies that if you try to command and control that, you're gonna have a very difficult time creating a culture that makes people excited to come to work every day. Right. So what I learned was, okay, hold on. I need you to make decisions. And I need, I need the person at the lowest level of the organization, whether it be the cleaners who clean the retail store or whether it be the person ringing up the sale, I need that person to be a decision maker. And so I have to prepare them to make decisions. And they have to feel comfortable making decisions. That's where the trust comes in. And I need to know that they're, they're going to make a good decision. So I have to get them downloaded on what the mission is, what the goals are, what the values are, so that it's part of their DNA. It's part of their muscle memory. And once I've done that hard work, and it's a lot of hard work to create trust and shared consciousness. Yeah. It's a lot easier to write a SOP, give somebody a number, and say, go meet it. Really easy to do that. But what happens when it breaks down? You have to fire somebody. Well, yeah. what if it wasn't their fault? 
It's not, it's not anybody's fault that there's 500 dispensaries in California and nobody's licensing any new ones. Well, if you're a consumer-facing brand, how do you grow in that environment? Very difficult yeah. to grow in that environment, right? You can be the greatest salesperson in the world. How are you going to grow in that environment? And so then you don't hit your number and you're going to fire that person. They're going to walk away with all the institutional knowledge that they have, especially if they were early or a founder or a family member, really. So no, I, I, I learned a different way and that is let them make decisions. Let them take care of the customer. Let them figure out what's wrong with this package and solve it. Let's figure out why this isn't compliant and let's push that decision making downward and let's have transparency in our decisions. So I need to know when my general manager is making a decision, I need to know what the decision is. Then we can groove on it together, right? And I can say, you know, I would have done that a little differently. Yep. Or rock and roll, exactly right. So you're creating alignment and you're unleashing their creativity. Yes. You're to empowering. Be, yeah, you're empowering people yes. to shine, let their And own... they're going to make mistakes. Right. They're going to make the wrong decision. And that's going to put egg on your face Well, and you and Steve never made the wrong decision. <laughs> way, right? We've made every wrong decision one can make. But that's right? wisdom. When you get to reflect on a body that's of right. work and see all the mistakes and know which ones not to make again. You don't learn as much from success as you do from failure or from making mistakes. You just learn a lot more from that. You just, all these feelings come up. You know you've made a mistake as a leader, yeah. right? And there's people depending on us. We've got 300 people on payroll. I worry every two weeks, right? I want to meet that payroll. I need them to have a prosperous life to go home to. And that's very hard right yeah. now in California, right? I need well, you've just finished one full year, July to July, of having stable regs. I remember last year was a nightmare. We, yeah. we had the first half of last year. It was every plan, every projection that anybody had for what we were going to accomplish last year was handicapped by the first six months being a complete yard sale. I mean, it was awful because of the regs. So yep. July, it started in earnest. You've had a full trip around the sun. What's the outlook? What's the indication from what you just saw? Uh, where's this going? And how, how optimistic are you? How excited are you about the future? Great question. Drew, you're full of really good questions. We'll have to ask you about Shakespeare a little later, too. Well, I'm just imagining somebody showing up to interview at Harborside in full Shakespearean garb next week because they're, they're going to riff on some Hamlet with the man. <laughs> I know how to get through to D'Angelo. Um, I think the players in the industry that are in the supply chain that have some kind of licensing, whether it be provisional or permanent now, or temporary or provisional, I guess it is, not permanent, um, are doing their best. They're innovating, they're learning, they're getting better all the time. But I don't think it's nearly enough. The structural problems facing us in California are so enormous that 80% of the cannabis transactions in this state are happening in the illicit market. Hmm. 80%. Wow. So nothing's changed. It's been that way well, for... Well, actually, it was more like 75% in oh. 2017. So it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. We lost half a billion dollars of market share 2018 over 2017, wow. according to BDS analytics. Going back to the, to the illicit market. Going, right, because the patients or people, working class people, 
I mean, people know how to buy weed in California, okay? And the fact that mine has a lab test on it and the person down the street doesn't, doesn't move the needle so much after 100 years of prohibition. It just doesn't. Right. And we can market all we want to, and the state can throw millions of dollars talking about the legal market, but until we address the structural constraint of taxes and local control and regulation, both state and local, until we address those three pillars, we're all going to be fighting each other over this 20%. We're going to be stabbing each other and slicing each other and dicing each other. And we're going to be very competitive. And we're going to be blocking sensible reform. We had a, a bill, the bill I mentioned earlier, that would have opened up retail. Yeah. We had people in our industry oppose that bill. We had people, very big players, multi-state operators, oppose that bill because they didn't want another dispensary in their little community right. that they had one in. Are you kidding me? Wow. So let's let's try let's drive down on that one point about the share that's going to taxation. Mm. Um, if you sat down with a napkin and penciled out what's fair and what's effective, what's the solution? Well, I think that consumers are comfortable paying 10%, maybe 15% more to be in a legal market experience. Right now, it's 50 or 60% more. That That's huge. That won't happen. Nobody got a 50% pay raise January 1, 2018 that I know of. Nobody did. Maybe the investment bankers that took all these companies like Harborside Public did. Um, but, you know, no. So it's very hard for if you're a consumer. I'm a heavy consumer of cannabis. I take four or 500 milligrams of edible cannabinoids a day, and I probably smoke another quarter ounce of weed a day. I'm a heavy consumer. It would cost me six figures a year <laughs> to get all those cannabinoids in the legal market yeah. right now. Six figures, man. And nobody has that. So it's very, very hard. If I wasn't who I am, I would be hurting. I would be hurting to get the cannabis I need for myself right now. So. Until we fix those things, there's going to be a war over the 20%. People are, and some people are going to win that war, and some people aren't going to lose that war. It's probably not going to be based on merit. It's probably going to be based on who can bleed the longest and still stand up at the end of the yeah. day. And that would be unfortunate um, course of events if the winners are the ones that just were able to bleed longer and it wasn't really based on merit. Right. Now, we've got some great models in the California market that are trying their hardest, Harborside being one of them. Vertically integrated companies trying to get the price lower for the consumer, right? Vertical integration helps with that a little bit. You've got co-op models like Flocana. Yep. Flocana, I'm so proud of them. I love that company. I will talk about how brilliant they are just as much as I'll talk about how brilliant Harborside is. We have to have that attitude. You know, we we're to, all in this together. Yeah, yeah, we have to the, 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 look everything that we're wearing, touching can all be made out of cannabis. What you're going to eat today, what we're going to eat here today, a third of it can made, be made out of cannabis. Yeah. These glasses, these I mean, everything. The opportunity is so great. We don't need to build any moats. We just need to tear down the walls 
you know, and, and tear the dams down and let the river of cannabis flow. There is plenty of room for everybody. We're gonna need to keep cannabis fresh for the rest of humanity. Bovita's gonna be fine, you know, yeah. and they're, they're probably the markets could support 10 Bovitas, you know, when we're done with the cannabis renaissance 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. So that's what I see. I, 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 I'm not optimistic because I've been in Sacramento for two years, two sessions trying to get some reform done and we have just gotten our asses handed to us up there. And we've worked very, very hard. We have a great relationship with the, we've, you know, everybody she, she, likes and, and us, to, everybody to her, to her credit, nice. To know? her credit, she's awesome. Are she's, you talking about Lori Ajax? Yeah. Yeah, she's, 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 she's a wonderful person. Very transparent. She's done, gone out of her way. I listened to her speak at Meadowlands uh, uh, at the camping deal last year, year before. Yeah. Um, tremendously accessible, trying to do the right thing. Yeah. But there's so many uh, people competing for the dollar, and there's so much, so many bureaucrats making rules about things they don't understand. Oh, goodness. That it's 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 devastating. Interesting model where the the Deang I'm going to coin it as the D'Angelo tax model. So let's put a cap on it at 20 percent for the well, consumer. I, I like just, 10 or 15. Okay, let's do 15 <laughs> just to give them extra room because they're going to need it. But if it could be a staged thing, right now it's at 50 percent. Yeah, the my my. So I, say I, say I, that out loud. What is the tax right now? Well, right now it depends what town you're in. So if I'm in San Francisco. If you're in San Francisco, you've got probably somewhere between a 40 and 55% increase from 2017 on products So right I now. buy an eighth for, say a number, ballpark. 50 bucks. So I have an oh. eighth that I buy for 50 bucks and then I pay tax on top of that? That's right. And what's my net when I walk out the door? You're probably walking out with 80 85 $90 is what you're going to have to pay for that eighth. This is why we do podcasts, because that kind of uh, clarity about what the transactional experience... Imagine this. Let's, let's take this back to hometown USA. Let's say I go up to the hardware store and I'm going to buy a gallon of windshield washer fluid for my car for uh, three bucks. Yeah. And I go to the register and they charge me two dollars and ten cents, maybe oh, more, more than that. I mean, you got to. Oh, put it oh, in, if if it, if, if it, it was, were cannabis, oh, if it's cannabis, it would be four bucks, yeah. three or four bucks. You and, know. And what else does that happen with? What nothing? Else is, there is nothing else in I our mean, economy. Tobacco has pretty intense taxes on it, but, but they're that, all built into the. Uh, it's a different. It's different, it's, and there's a federal tax on tobacco, right? So the federal tax on tobacco is really, really onerous, and then the states can tax it anyway. Well, and they eventually want. there'll be a federal tax on cannabis as well. Yes, you can count on that, brother. <laughs> um, of course, you know none of us get out of death in taxes. So when the feds decide to pull the switch on this, I'm sure we'll have a federal tax right there. Are they going to get it wrong at first and empower the illicit market? Yes. <laughs> well, which is what is happening now. If you, if, you, if you could place a bet on that in Vegas, I, I would certainly consider that a pretty good bet. But wine in California, for instance, wine, a dollar a gallon tax. A dollar a gallon. So that you can that go seems to, reasonable to me. Yeah, you can still buy two-buck chuck at Trader Joe's, right? Mm -hmm. And you can also buy the fancy... 
cab from Napa Valley for 200 bucks. But the dollar is going a different place. But it's, it's still a dollar. It's still a dollar to it's the taxing dollar. authority. That's right. So, so the wine people got it right. Um, and the cannabis people haven't got it right yet. But, you know, there's more work to be done. So I, 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 I you know, the big, what people ask me, what's the future of cannabis? Well, the future of cannabis is to get that 80% that's illicit into the legal market. And whether you're a producer and you're in that 80% or you're a consumer in that 80%, there's the opportunity, boys and girls. I can tell you what drink is going to be popular six months from now, but you know what? You can probably pay Google and Facebook to give you the same darn information. Right, right. But if 80% of the transactions are in the illicit market, what good is my new drink flavor? <laughs> I'm just going to compete with the, all the other drink flavors in that little 20%. So, so the future, we have to create one market. And we can't be afraid to do that. And right now, we are afraid to do that. And we're either afraid because of stigma. Oh, I don't want one of those in my neighborhood. I don't want my kids walking past that. I don't want my kids to smell that. Or whether it's, you know, our own self-inflicted wounds where we block reform because we're being greedy and we're trying to protect our own little moat and our own little castle. And, you know, you know, you had this article a few weeks ago where some folks in New York are trying to ban home growing in the, in the no. regulations. And, and I know Illinois, I think, banned home growing. Yeah. Well, that's so stupid. And it's fundamental it to all so the... So stupid. That was fundamental to every legislative action for normalization was home grow. Home I mean, growing it was, is it was key a, to it was the a, whole... It was a big deal in Canada. It's been a big deal all over the states, every place they've had. Everyone has this big fight about home grow, whether we should allow it or not. It why, is, why? why would you not want home grow? The only reason you don't want home grow is because you're scared that there's going to be cannabis in the neighborhood. You're a regulator or you're a mayor or you're a city councilor or you're a neighborhood watch president or you're a whatever you are. Or, you know, we're in this situation where our own industry says, no, there's, let's, let's, let's slow it down and let's so uh, i i reject all of that right? well and i'd encourage anybody in the industry to advocate for as much freedom as possible for the home grower for the for the vertically integrated for the wholesaler for anybody yeah right and, and with home growing the home grower doesn't compete with the legal market there's no reason to lock them out just like the person who grows tomatoes in their backyard doesn't compete with Whole Foods as tomatoes. Right. They just don't. Well, and if you have a home grow and you have your four, or how many plants can you have? In six California? in California. So if you had six plants and you nurtured these plants and you developed relationships with the, with this plant, you're going to end up having an experience that's going to cause you to have a certain level of expertise and a certain level of, uh, of uh, experience with the plant. It's It, it gives, it, it sort of it humanizes the plant and allows it to be yes. what it is instead of this boogeyman that's it been allows created people by people that are home growing to educate other people that aren't familiar with cannabis right. and, on a and, higher level. And we can take it even a step further if we look at the past. You know, growing your own cannabis was sort of a form of alternative commerce, right? 
because a lot of times you had some extra weed from your crop, but you didn't have any money. But your roof got leaky. And so you could barter the extra cannabis you had with somebody who could fix your roof. We want to preserve that. You know, just like you can barter vegetables if you grow. You know, I, I grow vegetables in my backyard. And when the cucumbers come in, there's too many of them right. for me to eat, me and my partner to eat. So I have to give you some make, away. Do you make pickles? Um, I, we don't make pickles because I grow the big ones. Um, but I do have lots of cucumber recipes now. <laughs> and I certainly, you know, give them away to friends and family and certainly could trade them for goods and services if, if, if and I'm sure people do that, right, out there in the world. So we want to preserve that. We also, as you mentioned, we want people to be close to this plant in every way, shape and form. The more people learn about cannabis and touch cannabis and have cannabis in their lives, the lower the stigma, Right. And so when the home grower harvests their crop and they realize and they can't make a vape pen cart, they'll go to the legal dispensary and buy one with the because they can't make that themselves, right? right. They can't make it themselves. So the it's a very important part of the legal ecosystem I think is home growing. Um, I also think, you know, you don't want to have dispensaries on every corner per se we do want to be smart about it but we also don't be, want... be nice to have at least one in every county uh, yeah right or one in every community or neighborhood we can do that we distribute lots of things in that manner neighborhood to neighborhood community to community and and that's how it's going to have to be with cannabis if we're going to create one market and if we're going to eliminate the stigma that people are still carrying around, the shame that we're still carrying around. I, you know, my brother and I, we have all these war stories from when we were in the illicit market. And we're all, sometimes we, we, we're in situations and people want us to tell those stories. And I even get nervous telling those stories. Even me now. Well, we didn't get I, you to tell too many nervous stories today. Because we have this shame and this stigma, right? And even, even someone like me, sometimes I have to check myself and say, you know what? This is a new time we're living in. Cannabis is good, not bad. Be loud and proud. Tell right. the stories and, 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 and let people learn and discover this. Because once people learn and discover cannabis, they will, on their own, come to the conclusion that this is a good plant, not a bad plant. And once we hit critical mass on that, once we have that tipping point on the stigma, then we get one market. Better days ahead. So Better uh, days ahead. Can we plan on... Uh uh, getting you again for a, a conversation about, uh, about this has been really fun and it's been great for us and I'm hoping that we can do this again you're a fascinating person, you're a great guest um, you've added a lot of context to what we're all doing in this cannabis industry um, it's just a treat to get to know you a little bit. Thank you for the great questions and thank you for the Shakespeare. You're very Always love that. Super generous with your time and we thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. So thank it's you. another uh, podcast by Bovida. It's called Cultivate. We're bringing you the people and the technology that are blazing a trail in the cannabis industry. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, at Bovida Cannabis. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Andrew D'Angelo. Have a great day. All right.